Over the last uh, couple of weeks, we've looked at three parables from Luke chapter 15 as we're in a series about parables. Parables have often been described as earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, but I hope we're beginning to discover that they're even more than that. In fact, these stories, they betray conventional thinking. They shock us into seeing the world in new ways and invite us into the kingdom in more profound ways. And that means that a parable is never as effective the second or third time that we hear it as it was the first. Because the first time we hear it, it's that surprise that's intended to give. But the more we study, sometimes the more comfortable, the more we become expecting what the end will be. And so for those of you who may be new to the gospel, maybe new to these stories of Jesus, maybe you'll have eyes to see to help us this morning. And that's where I want to begin our prayer this morning is that God would give us fresh eyes and fresh ears to hear this story once again, because this this morning is an odd story. Let's pray as we open uh, God's word this morning. Father, I love that when we come to scripture, we come to these words that are thousands of years old now, stories that were told generation after generation ago, and yet they still speak so clearly to our current day and age. God, I pray this morning that you would help us to have fresh eyes to see, fresh ears to hear. This morning, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Most of you have heard the parables I told you over the last couple of weeks before. Parable about a lost sheep, parable about a lost coin, and and then finally last week, the parable of the prodigal son. The context for these stories was very important. We talked about that over the last couple of weeks because Jesus tells these stories in a specific context to a specific group of people. He's dining with a group of tax collectors and sinners. And uh, along come these religious leaders, the Pharisees. And their question to Jesus is, what kind of company is this you're keeping? What kind of rabbi hangs out with this kind of group? To which I want to say, well, what other option is there, right? I mean, all of us are like these tax collectors and sinners, if we're honest with ourselves. That's the difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector when they come to the temple to pray, right? As one seizes sin, the other seems to act as if it's not there. And so Jesus responds to this question by telling three stories, three parables, that are intended to clarify exactly why he hangs out with this group at dinner. And these stories don't exactly paint these religious leaders in the best light. And these, in the last of these three stories, it's clear that the religious leaders are more like this older brother that we talked about last week. On the outside of the party, not sure if he wants to enter in. And, and at the end of the story, we're not sure what he decides. We're left almost asking ourselves the same question. Are we willing to enter the party the father welcomes us into? So the story ends there, and the ball is in the religious leader's court that he's telling these stories to. Will you remain, and will you stay at the party? Will you come to the table with these tax collectors and sinners? Will you stay here with Jesus? Or will you continue to murmur about Jesus from the outside? And the question's there for us, I think, again this morning. Outside the party or inside? And just like the older brother in the parable, we aren't quite sure how these parables, these, these Pharisees decide. But we get a hint, I think, at the beginning of Luke chapter 16 in the next story, which is our parable this morning, what they may have chosen. 
Look at Luke chapter 16, if you would, this morning. Feel free to open there. I want to begin in verse 1. This is on the heels of the prodigal son story. Jesus told his disciples. Now, it may be that he directs the next story to the disciples rather than the previous stories to these religious leaders. But I wonder if the disciples are the only ones who are left as those religious leaders begin to walk off after the last story. As I imagine, I expect these frustrated leaders might have been wandering off until they heard the next words out of Jesus' mouth to his disciples. Listen to this. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And now Jesus has their attention all over again. Because these Pharisees are wealthy. They were some of the elite people who were benefiting from the religious system to make a pretty nice life for themselves. And like most rich men in the first century, they weren't quite sure how their household managers were managing all the funds. They were entrusting the funds to household managers, likely like the one in the story that Jesus is about to tell. Just like we have some of us financial advisors today, you have to have trust in that person, don't you? You Hand over these books and you're trusting that this person will do what's best. And just like stories that come out today, there's always a risk when you turn over the books, that they might be dishonest. They might be skimming off the top. They might be cooking the books. Jesus is tapping into a real fear that these Pharisees would have had about the funds that they have when he begins to tell the strangest parable that he tells in the entire gospel. Verse 2 and following. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bills, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Now, that is a strange story, isn't it? But the truly strange part of the story isn't the story itself. It's the interpretation that Jesus gives to the story in verses 8 and 9. Let's read on. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. So that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, Christian bookstores have made a lot of money over the years with taking scriptures and putting them on crosses and putting them on bumper stickers and putting them on different plaques. In fact, many of us, we have some in our home as well. Uh, Maybe something you bought for your dad for, for Father's Day. But never once have I come across this verse that was put on. That cross. Um, Is the moral that you hope to teach your kids someday these words from Jesus' mouth? Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. If you ever find a bumper sticker or a plaque with that on it, buy it for me. I'd love to put it in my office. What is Jesus talking about? This is one messed up story. You've got a dishonest manager, a wise dishonest manager. What a juxtaposition that is. You've got a master who's commending the dishonest manager for cooking the books. 
And you've got Jesus giving an odd moral at the end of this already bizarre story. This parable has been disturbing from the very beginning. A simple reading of this parable would lead you to believe that Jesus supports managers who lie and steal to cheat their bosses. This is the kind of story that unbelievers use to discredit the Christian message. In fact, in the fourth century, Julian the Apostate, how about that for a nickname, right? Julian the Apostate, who was not a Christian, by the way, used this parable as a primary text, claiming that the parable taught Jesus' followers to be liars and thieves, and that noble Romans should reject all such corrupting influences. So what are we to make of this parable? I don't have a clue. I've read and I've read and I've read about this parable. I've read commentaries. I've listened to sermons. I've had conversations with some of you the last few weeks about this parable. Some of you sent in some things. Thanks trying to help me this last week because I mentioned I don't have a clue about this parable. One commentary that I read listed all the historical interpretations throughout the years of this parable. There are probably more, but it listed 18 different interpretations of what this story might mean. And maybe that's the most important takeaway this morning. That there are poor readings of parables, but there are many good readings as well. I, I assumed when I come to Scripture growing up, there's only one way to really read it right. But as I've come to see, it's amazing how God reveals more and more over the years. Right, The story that you've seen this, all of a sudden you see new insights. Scripture is an amazing word, a double-edged sword. So here's what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to preach three mini-sermons. And you can decide which one you like from this parable. Which one is the most convincing to you? Sermon number one. And don't worry, we'll try to keep it in 3035, okay? Sermon number one. Prodigal Son 2.0. The reason this story is so difficult to understand is because we fail to read it in its context. If you paid any attention to the story of the prodigal son that we talked about last week, You ought to hear the echoes in this story. Consider the similarities for a moment. Each story has a noble master or father who demonstrates extraordinary grace to a wayward underling. Both stories contain a questionable son or steward who wastes the master's resources. In fact, the same Greek root word shows up in both of these stories to describe the prodigal son and this dishonest steward. Look back in Luke chapter 15, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That word squandered is the same Greek word that shows up in Luke 16, verse 1. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. That word wasted, wasting there is the same word that's used to describe the prodigal son in the chapter before. Both of these verses contain the same word. And so Luke is intentionally with these words trying to connect these stories with his word choice. In each, the wayward underling reaches a moment of truth regarding those losses. The prodigal, in the the words of the text, comes to his senses in the story. And this steward says, what am I going to do now that I'm out of a job? They both come to this understanding, something's got to be done to change my situation. In both cases, the son or the steward throws himself on the mercy of the noble master. And both of these stories deal with broken trust and the problems that result from it. It's no accident that Jesus tells these stories back to back. These stories are connected. And this manager, he knows the the character of his master. 
He's spent time working for him. He has seen his character. He's seen his disposition. And even though the master fires the manager, we even see grace in the firing. Because he could have put him in prison. He could have charged him with much more than what he did. But what he said is, you're done with the job. Move on. Go ahead and hand over the books. So this manager knows that the master's merciful. He knows that from the years he's worked with him. He knows that even in, from his response to the mismanagement that's been done. So the manager hatches a plan. While he has no legal right to continue his work with the master's debts, he realizes the debtors don't know that yet. And so he uses a little bit of power that he has left to gain a soft landing place for himself after the firing is fully commenced with. This story is the reason why certain companies send a security guard with a fired employee to their desk. Maybe you've been on either side of that. Because the concern is, when you have nothing to lose, you might just do anything. The fired manager forgives the debts, knowing the master is going to find out eventually. And like the prodigal son, the dishonest master is making a calculated decision based on his knowledge of the master's disposition, based on his knowledge of who the master is. See, in the story of the prodigal son, the son comes to his senses. And he decides to ask the father and plead on his mercy, just make me like one of your hired servants. He knows he cannot be a son, but knowing his father's character, he decides, you know, it's worth a shot to be a servant. The master makes a similar decision in this story. The master's no dummy in this story. In fact, he's described as shrewd, this steward is. And in verse 8, the master commends the manager. And why does he commend the manager? I think it's important for us to listen closely for the distinction here. This is verse 8 once again. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Let's not mix this up. He doesn't commend him because he's dishonest. He commends him because of his shrewdness. The Greek word translated shrewdness is the word phronemos, which can be translated as shrewdness or prudence. In fact, Jesus uses the same word several times in the Gospels. I think it's instructive to look at these times. In Matthew 7, 24, when he says, the wise man is the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that word wise is the same root word here that's found in the story of the shrewd manager. So yes, it can be shrewd, but it can also be wise in this sense. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 10, verse 16, when he says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That sense of wisdom, of wise, it's the same sense here of the shrewd manager. That's what he's being commended for. He is skillful in self-preservation. He is sensitive to hopelessness of his situation. Does that preach to anyone this morning? Were it not for the grace of God? You see, this, this steward is aware, this manager is aware that the only hope he has is to depend on the generosity of the master. This parable is not a perfect analogy of God's kingdom. Parable instead is supposed to point us to our spiritual dependence on God's generosity. Because we are all in trouble were it not for the grace of God. We are all in a crisis because of sin. And our only option is to entrust everything to the unfailing mercy of our generous master. The wise one, the shrewd one, is the person who knows exactly where his or her trust should land in the hands of our God of steadfast love and mercy. Sermon number two. I title this one, Crazy Like a Fox. 
People have misunderstood this parable for decades. But it's not difficult to read this parable if you focus in on the right part in verses 8 and 9. The description, the explanation that Jesus gives. Let's read it again, Luke 16, 8 and 9. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than they are, than are the people of light. I tell you, use worldly weight to gain, wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, if you're a person of light, you're not doing it right, is what Jesus is saying. So study. Study closely the brilliance of this manager. And when you see his brilliance, I want you to translate that brilliance into your work for the kingdom of God. You notice how brilliant, how wise, how prudent this manager is, how shrewd he is? He goes from a position of powerlessness to a position of power. It's a remarkable turn in the story, if you notice. He takes a terrible situation, and he's shrewd enough to make lemon, turn lemons into lemonade. He gets fired, but he's smart enough to realize he's got more power than it first looks like. Because while he and the master know that he has no power in the situation, the debtors don't know that. So before he turns the accounts and ledgers over to the master, as he's out of a job, he makes some slight alterations. His thought is this. If I can get on the good side of the debtors, then maybe they'll give me a job. So there's a guy who owes 900 uh, gallons of olive oil, so he quickly cuts the guy's debt in half. Quick, because he doesn't want the master barging in on this situation. And then the oil trader, of course, responds and says to him something like this, I'm sure, seriously, you're going to cut what I owe the master in half? Thank you so much. Hey, if there's ever anything I can do for you. To which the manager thought, I will, and it'll be sooner than you think. And then he cut the second guy's debt, who owned a thousand bushels of wheat. He made his debt 800, and he says, I'm sure as well, oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. If there's ever anything I can do for you. At this point in the parable, the listeners know where all this is going. They know that when the master finds out what his manager has done, he's going to string him up. He's going to put him in debtor's prison. He's going to lock him up until he can repay the debt he's owed. How dare you mismanage something that wasn't yours in the first place? But the shrewd, wise, prudent manager is one step ahead of everyone in the story. Because you know what happens as soon as the debtors discover that their debt has been reduced. They go home and they tell their wives. And their wives go and tell all the friends. And before the master even finds out what the dishonest manager has done, there is a festive mood that breaks out in celebration across the village. And in praise of the steward who convinced his master that he should be generous and forgive people's debts. When the master finally takes the accounts and notes the changes recorded in the amount that he's owed, he is faced with two choices. Number one, he can go to the village and explain that the reductions were illegal because the steward had been fired before he changed them without a legal right to do it. And so the correct amount of debt was the original amount that must be paid in full. How's that going to go over? The party's over. The reputation for his generosity is removed. He's seen as just a wealthy man who needs all he can get. Or the second option is this. The master can remain silent. He can pay the price of this clever rascal's salvation and continue to enjoy his reputation as a generous man in the city limits. You see the brilliance of this manager? Do you see the shrewdness? Do you see his wisdom? Do you see his brilliance? He's crazy like a fox. 
And Jesus says, if only you people of light were as smart as all these people who deal with worldly wealth this way. In other words, the people who think there's nothing beyond this life, they're dealing with things a whole lot more shrewdly than any of us who seem to know where our eternity lies. So use worldly wealth, which is worthless kingdom people, to bless the kingdom of God. Every dollar in your pocket is unrighteous. It's tainted with injustice. The people of this world spend their mental energy motivated to trick people into giving their money to to develop their own sense of security and self-worth. So are you being shrewd with the money you have for the sake of the kingdom of God? When you dream of how you use the money, if you got a promotion, do you dream of your next vacation, your next car, your next house, or the great place you can be generous? with the wealth that God has provided. Be shrewd for the sake of the kingdom of God. Sermon number three, hashtag Team Robin Hood. As I've been reflecting on this story, I've noticed something peculiar that I believe needs some attention. I've noticed an intriguing response to this parable that I think would have sounded bizarre to first century ears. People Jesus would have told this parable to. When you hear this story, where does your sympathy go? Who do you feel bad for? Now, for most of us, our sympathy goes toward the master in this story, right? He's being treated so unfairly. He's the one who's losing the money. He's being unfairly treated. So here's my question this morning. Why do we have sympathy for the manager? Why are we offended for the rich man in this story? Why are we so quick to give our sympathy to the master? And I want to suggest maybe it's because of where we live. 21st century Christians in Collin County, Texas. We have a lot of masters in the crowd. Now, you might want to argue with me about that. You might say, no, 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 I'm a debtor, but your debt is much different than theirs because these debtors are more like sharecroppers. They're likely farming the master's land and their rent back to the owner is payment with the crops they've been raising. But I assure you, a first century Jewish crowd of hearers would not have had sympathy for the master in this story. Think about it. The Jews are living in a land that was rightfully theirs, but hasn't been for the last 600 years. The last 600 years, Jerusalem has been ruled by foreign powers. Currently, the Romans are ruling over them, and they're paying most of their income and taxes to the Romans, and they don't like it one bit. As I've been considering this text over the past few weeks, I've began to wonder, how would a first century Jew actually hear this story? And as I reflected on this question, I realized how much our social location changes the way that we read this story. If you're doing well for yourself, then it's natural for your sympathy to lie with the master. But if you're an oppressed minority struggling to find a way to provide for your family, then this shrewd manager becomes a hero of sorts. The shrewd manager is the ancient Robin Hood who sticks it to the man. He steals from the rich to provide for the poor. You know, morality and ethics are interesting realities, aren't they? Because when you're on top, you get to determine the rules, and it's a little easier to follow the morality you set up. Because when you set up the ethical standards, it becomes easier to abide by those standards. But it's much harder to abide by the rules if you're struggling to provide for your family. Think about the old story Victor Hugo wrote named Les Miserables. Is it wrong for Jean Valjean to steal a loaf of bread for a starving nephew? When 
the economic system unjustly starves those at the bottom of the society? 19 years, really? How would we read this story differently if we were born in a different time or place? How would you read this story if you were a first century Jew? How would you read this story differently if you were a refugee trying to provide for your family at the southern border of the United States? How would you read this story differently if you were caught in a cycle of generational poverty as you watch the government bail out Wall Street and auto companies but do nothing to help you find your way out of poverty? See, we tend to judge individuals for making immoral decisions. That's how we think about ethics in our age and day. But we rarely step back to consider how immoral decisions led corporations and governments to make their wealth. Well, we tend to quote Romans 13 rather than Job 24. Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? There are those who move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they've stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's oxen pledge. They thrust the needy from the path and force all the poor of the land into hiding. Like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. They gather fodder in the fields and glean in the vineyards of the wicked. Lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They're drenched by mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. See, we rarely take a step back to see what morality and ethics actually is. It depends where we stand and how we see the world. And for first century Jews and for Jesus who promised to bring good news to the poor, I wonder if the manager in this story is actually the hero. He's the Robin Hood who brings good news to debtors and puts rich masters in tight spots they can't seem to find a way out of. So before we allow our social location to lead us to be sympathetic to the master, I think we need to hear this story again at a deeper level. We need to hear it as a first century Jew would have heard it. Because think about it. Who gets hurt in this story? The debtors are happy. The manager is happy and likely ends up employed again. And even the master isn't upset. He actually commends the manager for his shrewdness. There's a good chance he ends up making more from his losses because his generosity creates goodwill and a desire for others to work with him and put their money with this guy because in the end, he might be generous with them as well. The only ones bothered by this story are us. And that begs an entirely different set of questions. I've got my favorite interpretation of the three sermons. I'm curious which one you like best. Prodigal Son 2.0? Crazy like a fox. Hashtag Team Robin Hood. And I wonder if our favorite has more to do with us personally than it does with the parable. Because as Stephen Covey says, we see the world not as it is, but as we are. Or as we are conditioned to see it. May those who, hear, who have ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, for the life he led, and for the principles he was about, and for the stories he told, and for the death and resurrection he committed himself to. And as people of God in the 21st century, I pray you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, and that you would give us feet that are ready with the good news of Jesus Christ.
It's in the name of Jesus that we all pray. Amen.